I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do. Besides, eat cake, especially if it comes from Sweet Surrender Cafe. Carrie has a cake problem. Do not get between (laughs) her and her cake. And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. So we have a fondness for Appalachia and have had several guests on Perks who hail from that area, including Alex Harrow and Ashley Blooms. But Appalachia is much larger than just the Kentucky slice that Carrie and I often think of. Appalachia is really a huge area that encompasses a vast and diverse array of people. Today, we talked to Kendra Winchester, the co-founder and executive director of the Reading Women podcast and a Book Riot contributing editor. But she is also the person behind the Read Appalachia Instagram account. She tells us what makes Appalachian literature special and why it's so important to her. But first, okay, let's talk about this cake thing because... We went to a book reading the other night at Carmichael's bookstore, and we got to meet one of our listeners in person in real life, which was really fun. And we went and had cake at Sweet Surrender, and you have been talking about cake for a while. And so I sent you a meme, or well, it wasn't a meme, it was a gif. It was a gif. It was a gif. Why can I not say it right? In fact, you sent me a whole article about how to say gif, and I still can't say it right. But I sent you a GIF that I thought was super funny. It was like, of course, with GIFs, you can't really explain it. It was Tina Fey. It was a clip from Saturday Night Live. And she's like shoveling this like sheet cake in her mouth. And then you sent me a GIF. And we have a lot of fun with GIFs. We do. That's that is actually one of my favorite things to do besides read a book and eat cake is send (laughs) funny GIFs back and forth. My husband and I often do that with one another. We'll just send, usually he's sending me ones that say, kiss my butt, but he would, (laughs) he would mean it like with a word that wasn't, butt anyway, and so we send funny GIFs. Okay. And for those people who don't know what GIFs are, and if my mother's listening to this, she will not know what a GIF is, but it's like a short little animated clip that runs over and over again. And it usually has, not always, but sometimes it'll have like a little caption with it. Did I explain that right? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Okay. So yeah. if you didn't know what a GIF was, my saying that is probably not going to help you know what a GIF is, but. <laughs> but go maybe. look it up. It's spelled G-I-F. My daughter's home on fall break from college and I've been watching a lot of TV with her. And I happened to be in the room while she was watching the show is called Explained, and it's on Netflix. And each episode, they go deep into a particular topic. And so the one that I happened to be in the room for was about exclamation points. And it was really fascinating because there weren't always exclamation points. It was something that kind of came about in the Renaissance period. And then They've been used and not used in different ways. But then did you know, and I know that you're a Moby Dick, you're a Moby Dick lover, Carrie. We all know that. Oh, yes, I am. There were 1,623 exclamation points in Moby Dick. Apparently, they were particularly popular at that period of time. Well, let me tell you, those exclamation marks did not make it any more interesting for me to read. (laughs) But in the 1920s, they kind of became uncool. For instance, Hemingway only has one exclamation point in Old Man in the Sea. 
And F. Scott Fitzgerald said that that using an exclamation point was kind of like laughing at your own joke. But then in the 50s, advertisers brought it back. Like everything had like big exclamation points after it. All this to say that I've been thinking about my own texting and emailing. We do so much of that now. Um, And I think I might use too many exclamation points. Well, better to have an exclamation point than to not use any punctuation at all. I guess so. The other thing they were talking about in this episode was that women are more likely to use exclamation points than men because women are more concerned about sounding, they want to sound friendly. And Mm. so using an exclamation point kind of like lightens a tone or makes you sound friendly. And I started thinking, I think I use exclamation points way more than you, but I usually do not use more than one exclamation point. Yeah, I think it depends. But if not professional, because I don't want to sound like a crazy person, like, ah, everything's so exciting. I don't know. <laughs> I gen- I guess I would generally, I go with periods. Yes. And I, I'm always the one who, who has exclamation points. I'm going to bring this around full circle because they had a linguist on there. And what she said was that lots of times people used exclamation points to try to determine the tone of something. But now we have emojis and we have GIFs and we have memes and we have these other ways of helping to set tone for what we're saying. And it was just, it was talking a little bit about how our language changes. So see, I brought that full circle back to GIFs. You did. I want to mention to our listeners that we have a new website but we're doing two sort of fun things on there. One of them is we're asking listeners to tell us about their five-star reads. And it's a virtual bookshelf, basically. So, hey, do you need a new book to read and you don't know what to read? Head to our website, check to see what some other listeners have recommended and, and why. That's fun. And the second one is pets because, you know, we love cats. We love dogs. And sometimes they make it onto the recordings, especially this week with Kendra Winchester. She's got the cute little corgi named Dylan who had something to say about some of our topics today. And you can hear him in the background, but we'll have a picture of Dylan on our social media, but also on our website. So head over there for that. Well, let's let Dylan have the floor and we'll also listen to what Kendra has to say. (laughs) Very good. Kendra Winchester, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So give us the scoop on Kendra Winchester. (laughs) Where did you grow up? What do you do? And where do you call home now? (laughs) So I am originally from the Ohio River Valley. My family is both Ohioans and Kentuckians. So I like to tease and say I have dual citizenship because if you grow up on one side of the river, you then will live on the other side. And that tends to be the tradition in my family. So I grew up on the Ohio side. My brother and my family now live on the Kentucky side. You know, but ultimately, I will say we it's UK all the way. So. <laughs> you were talking to somebody whose daughter and son, well, I have one attending University of Louisville and one who's graduated from University of Louisville. So we're a University of Louisville family, but I'm from West Virginia originally. So I really don't have any skin in the game except for that. You know, my husband's a big fan. (laughs) I don't even like sports. So y'all can like whoever you like. I I know nothing about anything sports related. So I, I actually have my UK thermos that I'm drinking out of right now here to represent. So, um, but I, I married a Californian and so we have, 
a lot of little, you know, discussions about what the corgi will wear, what jersey he will wear <laughs> during whatever season. And, you know, during football season, which is about to start, UK just pretends they don't have a football team. So he can wear <laughs> California jerseys right now. That's fine. <laughs> and so now you live in South Carolina. Is that I correct? I do. Yes. Yes. I live in South Carolina with my spouse and our corgi, Dylan. And I live now in the uh, low country. I lived in the upstate for 12 years, and now we moved down to low country last year. And it's a totally new world. It's a different state. It is subtropical. I have a palm tree right now, right outside my door. I saw a snake the other day and said hi. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like one of those places you always think would be the ideal place to to live, but it always seems kind of hot to me. <laughs> it's quite warm, quite warm. You walk out into soup and uh, your glasses steam up very quickly. <laughs> so tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. So I do all things books, I guess. So my main job, my day job, I guess, is I am the co-founder and executive director of Reading Women, which is a podcast that features books by or about women. And we are part of Lit Hub Radio, which is Lit Hub's podcast network. So I do that. And then I also am a contributing editor for Book Riot, and I focus on audiobooks. So I do a lot of their audiobook coverage, like their audiobooks newsletter, and I do a weekly column about audiobooks for them. And I freelance and I do a lot of different things. Those are the two two big ones, I guess. And I also do Read Appalachia, which is just a side hustle project that is – it's a passion project. There's no money involved. It's just me posting books. So, <laughs> You know, the funny thing is I actually found you through the, the Read Appalachia Instagram. I had no idea that you were part of Reading Women or a part of Book Riot when I asked you to be on the show to talk about <laughs> Read Appalachia. Isn't that funny? Um, so I'm assuming – and maybe I'm assuming wrong. You, you know, your life right now sort of revolves around books, but were you a big reader as a kid? I was a big reader, but I should say a big listener. I have a disability where I have lots of headaches and migraines, and uh, now I can't read print at all at this point. But when I was a kid, I could only read print sometimes, and so I would listen to a lot of audiobooks and play video games while I was listening or like in high school. I did my Brit Lit class was purely like audio listening, and then I would do verbal essays for my Hmm. mom. Yeah, lifelong reader, audiobook listener literature lover. So was the availability of audiobooks when you were in school, I would assume that it's not as uh, widespread as it is now. Was it hard to find audiobooks then? Yes, it was vastly different. It was vastly different. I could only basically read bestsellers. And that was typically the unabridged audiobooks that were available. And so like I have some Oprah Book Club stuff. I have read like John Grisham. And (laughs) I read... Percy Jackson, The Olympians, that whole series was out in audio. So it was very limited to what was super popular. So I I have a great knowledge of what was super popular in the 2000s, but um, that's it. So if you had your druthers, you know, you had to read bestsellers, but if, if you could read anything, what kind of genres did you like as a kid? When I could read print, I read a lot of fantasy novels like um, Sabriel by Garth Nix, uh, anything Tamara Pierce. I read, I'm just looking at my shelf right now. I I did pick up Twilight when it first came out and it was not popular when the first book came out. And so I got the audio of it. And so I actually have first editions of all of those because teenage girl. <laughs> and I loved Great and Terrible Beauty by Libba Bray. Those were on audio and it's like this Victorian 
girl running around solving mysteries and going into the afterlife and coming back out and stuff. It's really a lot of fun. (laughs) That sounds pretty cool. I'll have to look that one up. Because you have a wider availability of audiobooks now, do you still tend to like fantasy or do you read, I guess, more widely? And right now I just am pretty much reading what I need to read for the podcast. My bandwidth has definitely shrunk during year two of this pandemic. And so I've been reading for that. So we have different themes. So we just finished recording a theme on incarceration and that goes up on Wednesday as as of this recording. And that's kind of more how it works for me. When I have a chance to read something for air quotes fun, it's usually just a buzzy book that I think might be really cool to read. So like I read Rise to the Sun by Leah Johnson. It's her second book. It's like a girl girl romance um, mm-hmm. at a set in a music festival. And so that was a lot of fun. So that's kind of how that rolls. But then I get to just write about that in the newsletter. So a book usually has to go somewhere for work at this point. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the Reading Women podcast. It's been around for quite a few years, and it's a very, very popular book podcast among book podcasts. So how did it come to be? Well, Reading Women started five years ago. This is our sixth season, so we had our five-year birthday on June 1st. And it started because my friend Autumn and I, who's also from Appalachia, she's from around the Knoxville area. She and I wanted to communicate to our friends the books that we really loved. And we had this argument at a book club with our fellow English graduate students uh, that they didn't like Jasmine Ward and they wouldn't read her. And it was a whole thing. And so we decided to like spread the gospel of Jasmine Ward and other women authors that we love by starting a podcast. And it was very casual. I mean, the whole branding was geared towards our friends. I don't know other master's students have this, but it was such a small class. It was like six to 10 students, maybe. And each person had their favorite author, and they would always bring them up in arguments, even if it had nothing to do with (laughs) the class, right? So mine was Virginia Woolf, and uh, Autumn's was Flannery O'Connor, which inspired our logo. And it was very, very casual. And then somehow it just kind of grew. Uh, I... I'm a freelancer. And so I lost a big job at the end of 2016 because the project was over. And so I decided until I found, you know, another job, I would work full time for reading women, try to get it off the ground and do something with it. And I mean, here we are. So So I have to ask because I love Jasmine Ward. So tell me a little bit more about that. You know, you said an argument. I'm, I'm picturing, you know, people bashing each other with books. So <laughs> what, what was that like? And what was the, what was the argument? What's what's the issue? Oh, it was just a little pearl clutching. That's all that it was. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I understand. Well, I, I'm a big Jasmine Ward fan, so. And you're not a pearl clutcher, and so. I'm definitely not a pearl clutcher, <laughs> so. That's so, sure. originally the podcast was just the two of you, but now you have other contributors to it, right? So, yeah. tell us a little bit about its structure and how that works. Autumn left at the end of 2019 and it, you know, she was doing two full time jobs. And so, you know, she, you know, had to decide. So knowing that she would be leaving us at a certain point, we asked some folks that we knew to come on and be co-hosts for the main episodes. So how it's structured is we pick a theme. So like we'll say nature writing, that was August theme. And we feature a bunch of books on that theme in the first episode 
Two weeks later, we have a discussion episode on two of those books that are discussion picks. And so you could read along if you wanted to. We announce them early in our newsletters, so you can pick them up earlier and get a head start if you want to. And then the weeks we don't have those regular episodes, we have author interviews. So we now have co-hosts who do all parts of it at this point, but um, primarily they do the book club-like episodes where we talk about a theme and then discuss those books. Joss just joined us this year and has been doing some author interviews, and so that's been going really well. And it's nice because I edit the podcast, so now I'm I don't have to read all the things and edit them. I can just edit. And that's that's nice. I will say, yeah, it's it's a lot of work, to, you oh, know, yes. to have to do all of it. The reason that I had invited you onto the show was to talk about your Instagram account, (laughs) Read Appalachia, that focuses on that, Appalachian literature. So, you know, I'm from West Virginia. My family's from West Virginia. I lived in rural Kentucky for a while. Why do you think Appalachian literature needed some attention? I'm a believer myself, so, but I want to hear what you have to say about it. I'll see if I can abbreviate my little soapbox. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So basically, in the United States, we have American literature that's broad, that's considered more universal, more national. And then we have air quotes, regional literature that is like specific to a region. Now, I understand that in literature circles, regional literature means you can't remove it from a setting. But I would argue that a book set in Harlem is also regional literature because you can't move it from Harlem and it'd be the same novel. So for me, every region is part of regional literature, which then means that different regions are also still American literature on a national scale. So for me, it's very frustrating when I work in books and when I tell them that my grandfather is a woodsman, they laugh and that they don't take rural people seriously. And especially they don't take Appalachian people seriously. People ask me if I'm married to my cousin. Mm. People have asked, did we have running water and electricity? People have asked all of these very ignorant questions. And then they go turn around and say Appalachian people are the ignorant folks. Mm. Well, we're all ignorant about something. And theirs just happens to be they don't understand that woodsmen are very much still existing. (laughs) Right. So for me, what Appalachian literature does is it creates awareness and educates folks not from the region that, hey, we still exist, but also that the region is huge and includes major cities like Pittsburgh. Like it just kind of boggles my mind. So I think Appalachian literature is so important because there's so much misunderstanding about what Appalachia is, the people there, and there's just a lot of ignorance around outsider's view of the region. And so I think Appalachian literature helps educate those and get rid of that kind of ignorance. And, and, you know, the joke in Kentucky, at least if you live in Louisville sometimes, is that, you know, Louisville isn't really part of Kentucky. It's the biggest city. And and sometimes it feels like there's a, a disconnect. And so even for myself as a lifelong Kentuckian, when I think of Appalachia, I think Kentucky, but it's really a lot broader. So do you notice any differences within the styles of writing in terms of uh, Appalachian literature from Kentucky versus Appalachian literature from Alabama versus Appalachian literature from Pennsylvania? Yeah. So we're using the Appalachian Regional Commission as kind of a guideline. Appalachia extends from New York State all the way down to Georgia, northern Georgia and northern Alabama. And so there are also sub-regions. I don't list them all, but that gives you a general idea of what the different cultures are. And so 
if you look at the map of the Appalachian Regional Commission, I would say those are great guidelines for the different cultures within Appalachia, and you could even break those down more. So in central Appalachia and eastern Kentucky and you know, Western West Virginia, that, that gets confusing. But uh, <laughs> when you, you look there, that's very much very isolated, very distinct. You go to Pittsburgh and you have folks like Deisha Filial who are writing, you know, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And so you have lots of urban Appalachians as well. And so each different region of Appalachia has its own flavor and style. And what I personally find interesting is that, you know, there are 20 to 25 million people who live in Appalachia. That's a moderate-sized European country. There are so many different distinct styles. And so I love that that exists and that there's such a broad perspective. Disha Filial is originally from the South, but she moved to Pittsburgh like 20 years ago. So we accept her uh, (laughs) as one of our own. And she has done so many great things. It was even shortlisted for the National Book Award. And that book came out from West Virginia University Press. So I really love seeing all those different styles and flavors and histories come together. If you look at the counties for Kentucky, for example, the eastern half is in Appalachia and the western half is not in a- considered part of Appalachia. But there is a distinct flavor. If your state in particular is part of an Appalachian state, you could still feel the difference there. So for example, South Carolina has a, just a few counties in Appalachia. I lived in one of them um, until recently, but it still had that flavor. Like the state is still an Appalachian state. And so there's a lot of people who have heritage from the Appalachian portions. So for example, a lot of people from Eastern Kentucky moved to Louisville and uh, they have that heritage and they take that with them. Right. My husband's grandfather was from Pikeville. So that's just part of the, the conversation and the stories. And he was a coal miner and it's part of what you take with you. They moved to Louisville, but they brought that with them. So I want to ask about, you know, a, a lot of times I think if you're an English major, you know, you may have talked about Southern Gothic literature, right? So you think about you know, decrepit homes and and ghostly settings and stuff like that. And so that's how you think about how Southern Gothic informs writing. Because Appalachian literature is so broad, are there, I I guess, touchstones to Appalachian literature that tends to be, I guess, the same across whatever subregions there are? Yeah. So there are some key things that kind of make Appalachian literature and that are universals, I believe. So a lot is isolation, rural stories in that way. Um, While there are plenty of urban Appalachians, I think most people are, are more familiar with rural Appalachians. So that is something that, you know, urban Appalachians are pushing for more of their stories because most people don't think of them when they tell stories. I think environmentalism is a huge part of Appalachian literature because so many Appalachians have fought against, you know, things like mountaintop removal. I think another big part of Appalachian literature is family. Um, You think in Crystal Wilkinson's The Birds of Opulence, it's generations of Black women that are part of that. And you can see the heritage of what's passed down from one family member to another. You are in Appalachia typically because your family's from there. Very few people move in um, to the area. Um, That's not as common. I mean, we actually have out-migration is a huge problem. Losing young people and their skills are moving to other places just because 
it's very difficult to live in Appalachia with the economy the way that it is. And the last thing I think is important to know is that there is a like subsection of Appalachian literature called Afrolachian literature, mm-hmm. um, particularly the Afrolachian poets. And uh, this kind of started with Frank X. Walker coining the term Afrolachian because when they would, you know, Crystal just said in a recent interview when I was talking with her, she's another founding member of the Afrolachian poets. But she said that when she looked up the definition of Appalachia, it was always the definition was white people mm-hmm. in the mountains. And so by using this term Appalachian, they're reclaiming both their African-American identity and their Appalachian identity. And that gave them a space to breathe and be fully who they are. Being Appalachian is also a key part of their identity that wasn't being recognized by wider Appalachia. And so I think when you look at all these different things, it creates a beautiful and rich literature. It might not feel like a New York City novel, but it's still very much still American literature. It's still very important to our overall conversation. What's something that you think that people who haven't read Appalachian literature get wrong about it, you know, if you, if they just hear the term? I think most people think nowadays, I guess, that Appalachian people are all very conservative and believe a certain thing one way. But in reality, that's not the case. There are so many progressive movements in the region. I mean, in fact, Kentucky and West Virginia were democratic states for a very long Mm -hmm. time. So there are people of all different perspectives. It's not just a singular monolith. You know, West Virginia has the highest percentage of trans people per the percentage of the population in the nation. So it kind of shocks me that people don't think that there are queer people, for example, in Appalachia, but also like you need to then help us like send resources. You can't just go hide in your bastions of urbanness or whatever. And, uh, you know, if you want to truly help folks and, and be part of that, then, you know, think about those as well. So there's such a wide range of perspectives. You might not realize that seeing like giant flags of a certain kind uh, posted on the side of buildings on the highway but there are a wide range of people here, and I think people forget that. In fact, I think in Kentucky, one of the first towns that passed a fair housing ordinance was a little town in Appalachian, Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky. I forget the name of the little town now, but I remember hearing somebody speak about it at a political rally. That's I don't think that most people yeah. outside of the region would, would imagine that that was the case, that it wasn't Lexington or Louisville that did it first. Yeah. And it's, you know, a huge union area. I mean, we just hit the 100 year anniversary of the battle for Blair Mountain. That is a huge key part of Appalachian history, but it doesn't fit into people's narrative of what kind of people come out of Appalachia. And so they just ignore that kind of evidence because it's too complex. You have to work for it to understand someone else's history, right? So I, I just hope that by reading more books from Appalachia, people would begin to understand that history and fill those gaps. Are there some books that, you know, just when you think about Appalachian literature, those just come to mind immediately? Yeah. You know, I think of a lot of my friends who might be from a different culture or community to me and how they kindly just shared some of their favorites. Um, So for example, one of our co-hosts, Samaya, is a Muslim woman from Saudi Arabia. And 
she shared these books with me and in the kindness of, you know, friendship and whatever. And so when I share books, it's very much in that vein. It's here are some of my favorites. Who cares if you have know nothing about the region? Go read like Silas House. You know, mm-hmm. there's a book called Southernmost about a pastor who is in Tennessee. And then there's a flood. A gay couple's house has been washed away in their neighborhood. So they come to the pastor's house. And then the pastor's wife is like, no, they can't stay here. They're gay. And the pastor gets into a fight with his wife and basically then preaches a sermon about being accepting and loving others. And he basically gets fired from his job as a pastor. And so it's a whole saga. But it's, you know, this man who's coming to terms with how some of his beliefs could be harmful to others. That's a beautiful book that Silas House is a a gem. Um, He is, yeah. And so would recommend I really like an anthology called Black Bone. It's an Afrolachian poets anthology for their 25-year anniversary. That one's great. He's, he's very opinionated. That is for sure. And I guess the last one I'll mention is Crystal Wilkinson's Birds of Opulence. It just came out in audio. It's gorgeous. Well-beloved by all. <laughs> I have not read that one, but I recently finished one of her short story collections, Water Street, and I, I enjoyed that very much. So, She's so talented. Uh, Birds of Opulence is definitely on my list. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet. So J.D. Vance published Hillbilly Elegy in 2016, mm. which has received uh, – has a, there's a lot of opinions about it, let's say, and, and he has now launched a political campaign. So – what do you see problematic about his book? I feel like most people who are from Appalachia or have connections to Appalachia are not huge fans of this book. Whenever people talk to me about this book, they always say, oh, it's a memoir. He's telling his own family story. This is his truth, as it were, air quotes. But that's not actually what he does in the book. He uses his family story to make generalizations about the region and what hillbilly values, air quotes, are. <laughs> and it's not a good perspective. And one of the things I didn't know when I first read the book was that he cites these scientists who are actually like connected with eugenics. Oh. And uh, I did not know that because I didn't know who the scientists were. But I read What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia by Elizabeth Cat, And she's like, yeah, like this is a eugenicist. He's connected with a lot of racist, ableist ideas about things. You know, so I, I think there are a lot of big red flags flying in the book. For sure. And I own a copy because I reference it so often. I want to make sure the quotes are correct, but it doesn't sit on the Appalachian shelf. (laughs) Yeah. You had an article in Book Riot where you offered up suggestions to read in place of Hillbilly Elegy if you really wanted to get an idea about Appalachian. What were some of the books that you mentioned on that list? Yeah. So there's been two posts in that series so far. And I think the big thing is that no single book can speak for an entire region. So the idea was that these books would stand in for that. So I have Afrolacha by Frank X. Walker on there. I really like Step Into the Circle, which is an anthology of Appalachian writers writing about Appalachian writers. And it features contemporary writers. So, you know, we're not a region that's living in the past. We very much have a present. Even As We Breathe by Netsunuk Clapsaddle is the first published novel by a member of the Eastern Band Cherokee Indians. And that's really fabulous as well. I think there's just so many great books that we don't really need J.D. Vance's terrible memoir to to speak for us because 
it didn't even grow up in the region. Like I just, it blows my mind sometimes. So I've mentioned your connection with Book Riot, which is an independent book site that has a whole host of ways for book lovers to access info about books, including they have many podcasts, and I listen to several of those. They have newsletters specifically towards certain genres and other original content. So what has been your role with Book Riot? So I started out writing a weekly feature about audiobooks, and I still do that. Um, I've been a TBR bibliologist, so they have a company where that's kind of like Stitch Fix for books. You know, they they send ah. you recommendations, or you could also, if you're in the U.S., you could order the um, physical version of that, and they'll send you a box of books they just picked for you. I've done that. I did that for over a year, and then I took over the audiobooks newsletter at the beginning of July, I believe. So I now write a weekly newsletter. So I write about sixteen hundred words about audiobooks every week for them, and it's a lot of fun. Okay, so you said a bibliologist. Yes, <laughs> that is what I want to be. <laughs> That's a great. I think it, it reminds me. I think that when Amy and I were tossing around possible names for this show bibliophilia was one of them i think <laughs> and then bi- biblioboobly was actually i think another one and now i can't remember what that one actually means but it's an actual <laughs> word so you were like the book stitch fix person yeah i mean there's a large group of bibliologists that huh. work for tbr like i would say easily over 20 i don't know how many there are now but it's quite the operation and it's pretty fabulous service. I've actually gifted it to people before. So I guess I used to work for that part of Book Riot, but I still love it and I do spend my own money on it sometimes. Wow. We need to put our applications in for the next <laughs> opening care. <laughs> So fight over who gets it. Maybe we can both do it part-time, right? We can both do it part-time and that'll be like a full-time person. But I didn't realize that you were heading up the newsletter for audiobooks. I have sort of a love-hate relationship with audiobooks. When I find a really good one, I love it. But most of the time, I feel like I'm sifting through ones that are just okay. Do you find the same thing? I guess you've been listening to audiobooks for since you were a child. So so maybe your attention span for them is better or is more refined than my audiobook <laughs> tastes, I guess. So so what's your secret? Um, I would say the secret is to view your listening comprehension like you would your reading comprehension. Mm. If you're reading Anna Karenina and loving it, if you haven't really listened to audiobooks, you can't just start with Anna Karenina on audio because that, that'll overwhelm you and make you feel very discouraged, right? So start with something you've already read before. And I would say start with a middle grade or YA novel so that you your brain does not have to work as much and begin building up your listening comprehension. And eventually you will get to where there, there could be parity between the two. That's a really good tip. I do find that middle grade books are easier. I often find nonfiction books are easier too for me because I feel like if I zone out for a minute, like if I'm walking my dog and I'm distracted for a second, I haven't missed a whole plot point, you know, and I can still continue to go on and not feel like I am missing something major in the story like I would if I was trying to listen to Anna Karenna while walking my dog. (laughs) So I think that's a great tip. You know, you're being a professional book person now. What is something exciting to you about the book world currently? And what is something that you would like to see change? Oh, it's really exciting for me is that 
we're seeing a broader range of, of stories coming out. You know, there are more stories from different marginalized communities than there have been ever before, which is great. I would like to see more books by and about disabled people and more disabled folks be included in publishing. We are currently the smallest stat in that diversity in publishing report that comes out every year where they survey people. And I think we're less are we less than a percent or less than 5%? It has to be less. Anyway, it's terrible. Whatever the... <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah, either one it's is terrible. bad. Uh, so I would love to see more disabled people included in that. And I would also love for people to recognize that audiobooks are first and foremost a accessibility tool for disabled people. And so if we're going to discuss audiobooks, disabled people need to be part of that conversation because while, yes, it's great that non-disabled people can use them, they were originally created for blind folks to be able to read books and then other disabled people discover them and got access to them and then the greater world. So I think a lot of people forget the origins of audiobooks and lose amount of respect for their purpose, I guess, in that way. It infuriates me when people are like, well, that's not reading. When, when you talk about English language arts, that's not just one thing. It's not just writing. It's speaking. It's listening. It's reading. It's comprehending. It's this very big umbrella. And it still counts. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And sometimes people ask me that question. And, well, what if I can't remember if I read it in print or on audio? Like, mm-hmm. is it not going to count? But also, who is counting? Right. Who is going from door to door being like, hey, have you read audiobooks? Oh, those don't count for your reading. Right. Uh, you said this on the internet. How dare you? Like, no one's doing that. <laughs> right. And why does it matter if it counts anyway? <laughs> right, right. Great point. Great point. Um, well, it has been awesome chatting with you. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll all talk about what we're reading. Well, we are back with Kendra Winchester and with Carrie. And Carrie, what are you reading right now? So I'm going to talk about a, an audiobook that I listened to not too long ago. It's called Me and Banksy by Tanya Lloyd Key. And this is middle school age book, like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, maybe ninth grade too. And I decided to listen to it because it has this weird looking squirrel on the front. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that looks interesting. And plus I knew who Banksy is. So if you don't know who Banksy is, Banksy is an artist who I think Banksy is primarily like in England, but his or her work, I think it's a he, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I'll say they, they are kind of an anonymous artist who will do like sort of random pop-up public, some people would call it graffiti. I don't call it that. I call it art. But it's usually art that it's trying to say something, right? And I know a lot of time art is trying to say something, but Banksy's art can be political. So I was sort of interested about this book just because I was like, what, what can this be about? So it is the story of a girl named Dominica, and she attends a private school. And, you know, I mean, school is school, but what gets weird is that her school has installed all of these surveillance cameras. And what happens is these 
videos of students start popping up on social media. And they're videos of students doing things at school when they thought they were alone. Like there's a video of one of the students picking her nose. And with Dominica, one day she was in the library. She looked around. She was all by herself. She realized that her shirt was on incorrectly. And so she took it off real quick and put it back on. Well, that video ends up making its way to social media. So it's a huge embarrassment for a lot of the kids. And so they don't want to tell their parents because for Dominica, she's like, I took off my shirt at school, but she thought she was safe because she had looked around and nobody was there. Well, Dominica likes art a lot. And so she discovers Banksy. And, you know, I I don't want to give any spoilers away, but basically Dominica and her friends and them trying to figure out who is taking this surveillance footage and blasting it everywhere. And so they do their own graffiti, in a sense, to try to make sense of it. So they're trying to figure out some of these big issues that, you know, most of the time adults grapple with, but they are middle schoolers and they're having to grapple with it. So... I enjoyed the audiobook. I thought it brought up a lot of really cool issues about, you know, surveillance and what people are willing to accept in the name of security. But also the idea, you know, you see people say, I don't want the government following me. And they're walking around with their phones and they're checking in like on Facebook to Kroger and all these places. And it's like, you're sort of doing it to yourself. So this book sort of makes you think about some of those complications and complexities of how much do we put ourselves out there and we don't have to. So I thought it was pretty smart. I love it when a a middle grade book tells a story of young people, but also relates to some of these sort of larger ideas that most of the time young people, or we think that young people don't think about them, but they really do. So I would recommend it. It was a good listen. So Banksy, I'm trying to think. I don't know a lot about Banksy, but sometimes isn't Banksy's art, doesn't it sort of appear and nobody knows how it got there? Yes. Kind yes. of thing. And it was kind of funny. There was something recently about some art popped up and people were like, where did this come from? And yeah, it's just, it's quick. And I think that the artist uses stencils. So like all of these stencils are already ready to go so that Banksy can just jump out of the van, spray paint them really quickly, and then and then get out. So that's part of the allure is that, as far as I can tell, nobody's 100% sure who Banksy is. So, mm. well, Kendra, share with us what you have been reading. Uh, well, I have been reading Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samrasina. And this is an essay collection about disability justice, which is the, I guess, the idea of, of justice for disabled folks. It's like the, what's the word I'm looking for? It is, it's part of the activist movement for disabled people. Okay. And so she talks about how in particular queer femmes of color have been on the forefront of disability rights activism. And so then she also breaks down different ideas within disability justice for you. And I really have loved reading this because she puts words to feelings that I've had as a disabled person. She puts words to that and and explains them. And so you can hand this book to non-disabled people and say, hey, check this out. This will give you better ideas of what disabled people have been working towards 
because one of the things I've noticed is that when we talk about social justice, we don't even talk about disability. And, you know, part of that ableism is that people don't even think about us. And so that's something that she talks about, as well as more explicit, like, active forms of ableism. But I found it really just really encouraging to read. I've been working through it over the course of the last year. And I'll like re- listen to an essay and annotate while I'm listening. And it's really a great reading experience and a great listening experience, I should say. Are there books that you have read that you would recommend to people? Like if they, you know, if they want to add more books uh, about people dealing with disabilities to their reading lives, do you have some that you recommend? Um, I would recommend Disability Visibility, which is edited by Alice Wong. It is an anthology, and a lot of the writers in that anthology also have their own books. So it's a great way to find more books about disability by picking up this anthology. And it also features a wide range of disability. I, I really, really love that book. I think it's really helpful. Um, and Alice Wong also has a website and a podcast where she interviews disabled people And so I think those would be great resources. Hmm. Good tip. Well, Amy, what have you been working on? You said yesterday that you can't seem to finish a single book. So yeah, I'm well, this one I finished a few weeks ago, but yes, I'm having a little bit of a crisis where I'm having trouble finishing, but I'm almost done with two. I think it's that I was trying to read too many books at one time, maybe, and I was juggling them. And therefore I felt like I wasn't getting very far with any of them, but I'm going to talk about is a book called The Trauma Cleaner, One Woman's Extraordinary Life in the Business of Death, Decay, and Disaster. And this is a biography. It came out in 2018 by writer and lawyer Sarah Krasnestein. And Sarah splits her time between living in the United States and Australia. And this book was a huge bestseller in Australia. And it won the Victorian Prize for Literature, which is, I think, it might be the biggest literary award given in that country. And it's the story of Sandra Pankhurst who Krasnestein met at a convention in Melbourne, Australia, for a forensic support services conference. And Sandra is the founder of a company called Specialized Trauma Cleaning. And it's a company that cleans up after death, sickness, suicides, hoarding, and general squalor. And Sandra describes her business um, as specializing in the unpleasant tasks that you need to have taken care of. And I think most people don't put much thought into what happens to a home after a murder or if someone's committed suicide uh, in a messy way. What happens after that? But when you start to think about it, at least for me anyway, it's hard to stop thinking about that. So Krasnostein contacts Sandra to interview her and finds that Sandra has a fascinating life story absent even of her job. Sandra is a woman in her 60s who is perfectly dressed, is charming, confident in her manner, and is also transgendered. So Sandra Pankhurst was born as Peter, and she received her sex change in the early 80s in Australia when the surgery was sort of being refined. And so Sandra has been a husband and a father, a drag queen, a sex worker, a wife, a stepmother, a business owner, and president of her local chamber of commerce. And she came from a horrific childhood to become a wholly successful and fairly happy person whose health, though, is compromised because some of the choices she made earlier in life, like taking too many hormones when she was extremely desperate to become a woman. But what Krasnstein does in this book is interweave stories of Sandra's life from birth to present day with her company's daily work, trauma cleaning. 
So we as a reader accompany Sandra and her workers to homes of hoarders who are trapped by the things that they can't get rid of, uh, of people who are mentally ill and live in squalor, of the homes where murders and suicides take place. And she tells us the best way to get blood out of carpet and how regular bodily fluids will eat away at sofas and mattresses and other household comforts. As I was reading the book, I felt like there was this huge metaphor in this story. So Sandra, who has gone through so much abuse and heartache in her life, has a job where she cleans up the darkness and heartache of others. And it makes you marvel how someone can deal in the darkest parts of other people and still be able to be okay themselves. Although... You know, she caused some pain, and, and in the book, the author is very, I think she's very honest about Sandra's life. She caused a lot of pain to her former wife and to her children, but it makes you wonder if the trials that she went through in her life made her especially adaptable to unpleasantness. So I read some reviews of this book that were sort of critical of it because the readers believed it was going to be all about the trauma cleaning, so more like a nonfiction book about a job or an industry, and they weren't counting on the fact that there was going to be a, a personal story in there as well. But for me, the melding of the two and the author's beautiful writing made it truly something special. This was a five-star read for me. I adored this book. I split my time reading a physical copy, but also listening to it. And I will say that I thought the audiobook version was outstanding as well. The narrator is Australian, and it gives you a great taste of what it might be like to actually sit down and talk to Sandra yourself. And as I was looking up the author today before we were recording this, I saw that she, that she has a new book of nonfiction out called The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death, and Faith, and I'm going to check it out. I'm not totally sure what the book is about, but it includes something about ghosts, aliens, and gods. It's all, all those things were in the description. So I'm intrigued, but I really just love this author's writing. It's a fabulous book. Oh, you've read it. Yeah, yeah. I it's, love that book. Yeah, it's, it was so good. Yeah, I, I love the structure and I love the way that the author was able to kind of disappear while she was telling story and uh, it's really good. You listen to many more audiobooks than me, but I thought that the audiobook was very good. <laughs> it was very good. I agree. Cosign. <laughs> Cosign, good. <laughs> All right. That sounds awesome. Well, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, Kendra's going to answer her three about me. We are back with Kendra and she's going to answer her three about me. And every time I say that, I always think like in my head, I'm like, she's going to answer questions about Carrie. I'm just going to throw a random question. <laughs> she has to guess the answers. All right. Question number one, you are very upfront about your own disability. And sometimes it is a long process coming to terms and accepting that you have issues that are just part of your life. And I say this as someone who, I mean, it's not disability, I guess, I, uh, but you know, I have OCD and it took me a really long time to accept that in my life. So is there anyone or any ones who inspire you to not hide, but to take pride in your disability? Yeah. Um, well, first, you know, OCD is part of the neurodivergent community. I have OCD, so I connect with that. Uh, and it does take a while to process things oftentimes. I think the big thing here is like when you have people who become part of the disability community later in life, you know, the disability community is unique that you can join it at any point in your lifetime. You could wake up tomorrow and be a disabled person, for example. And so I think so many people have to work through 
internalized ableism because you've grown up thinking a certain way because of the prejudices that society has against people with disabilities. So that is mental gymnastics sometimes. And I know therapy has helped a lot of people. Um, I grew up with my disabilities and I grew up with this a disabled mom. And so, you know, for me, it was normal. And I'm so grateful that my mom was able to provide me a childhood where I felt my disabilities were normal, even though like I was homeschooled because of them. And so I think for me, it's not accepting who I am. It's finding safe places to express that I'm disabled. It's not always safe for me to say that I'm disabled because I might not get a job or they won't renew my contract or something like that. And unfortunately, even though that is illegal, it still happens all the time. There's no one right answer, I guess. It is something that every disabled person, whatever you know, severity or range or whatever their disability is, every person has to f- figure that out for themselves, which is why I love reading about other disabled people because it gives me ideas, other avenues that will that might help me and understanding myself better and accepting the parts of myself that society says are, are bad when in reality, it's just a different way of living. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I understand why people don't speak out more and I guess share things about themselves, but I wish they did because when you have whatever issue you have, I mean, like when I was diagnosed with OCD on the one hand, I felt relief because so many things in my life finally made sense, but I also felt super isolated. And so I have tried to let other people know, like you can still have a very productive, lovely life you just have to deal with these certain things. I mean, I, what is normal anyway? You know, it's exactly. like everybody has something, you know, they just may not talk about it, but everybody has a challenge. So, well, I'm going to ask you your question number two, which is about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is a dog. And <laughs> you have a separate Instagram account for your little Corgi, Dylan, at the book Corgi. And I don't know if, if you're currently doing it, but you, have frequently attended your local dog park with Dylan. So I'm wondering what Dylan's favorite activity at the dog park is. And do you have a memorable dog park story? <laughs> um, so Dylan is a people dog. He doesn't dislike other dogs. He's more just ambivalent. He's like, no, you cannot give me scritches. So there is no point in me interacting with you. So he goes from dog parent to dog parent in the dog park asking for scritches. And who's going to say no to a corgi? Very few people (laughs) in this world. And most of them are cat people. So, you know, there's that. But I think the most memorable thing is, um, you know, we had Dylan neutered around six months. So he did not learn certain habits, we might say. (laughs) And uh, so we were at the dog park with my spouse and Dylan. And Dylan at the time was still pretty shy. He would always stay within a certain range of us. It's almost like he had an invisible tether because he just didn't know the dog park very well or anyone else there. So he's following us around and all of a sudden we hear this screaming and like these dogs have created an awkward conga line. (laughs) Oh, uh, we might say. uh, (laughs) And I'm like, Dylan, don't look, don't learn bad habits. Like you're innocent. And uh, it was like a three to four dog conga line. I don't know how it happened. I try not to think about that, but the dog parents quickly went over and detached all of the dogs and stopped that. 
from happening. I hope there were no children there. Um, (laughs) So we are frequent dog park attenders, or or at least used to be. It's been a pretty hot summer. We haven't taken them as much this summer. But um, I have a golden retriever who is much like Dylan and that she's really just there for the people. You know, she goes from person to person to, to get some scratches and some loving. But then I have another dog who loves to run and she does like to play with the other dogs. She thinks that she's the fastest dog and most of the time she is. But what we discovered about her is that if she and another dog are playing chase, she always wants to be the one to be chased. But if another dog, if she thinks that that dog is faster and is going to catch her, she will fake an injury. She'll squeal and roll on the ground and <laughs> throw a little temper tantrum about it. <laughs> and the other dog parent thinks, oh my gosh, what did my dog do? You know, they're they're like horrified and we're like, no, she. it's sort of like professional <laughs> soccer, right? You know how they'll fake an injury, you know, and act like that they're, they're so injured. She does that and then she'll oh pop word. up and she won't play with that dog again. Oh my word. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. So that's, that's my... Uh, dog story right there. All right. Last question. What is something you miss about your hometown of Portsmouth, Ohio? I would say the food because while it's part Midwest, part Southern and part who knows. And so (laughs) we have a lot of random casseroles. So that's not what I miss. (laughs) (laughs) The random casseroles is right. Yeah. Uh, So I really love the restaurants there, which have a lot of unique flavors. So for example, in the early 2000s, there was a diner revival thing. And they started building these 50s diners that were stylized and like the silver metallic outside, the neon lights, the booths, and like it it looked like it was a 50s diner. They served all of this 50s diner food and they failed a lot of them. And so they were bought out by other restaurants. Other restaurants would revamp the inside and make them look whatever they wanted to. But there was this one Mexican restaurant called Toro Loco that just put sombreros around the diner and <laughs> these random, you know, Mexican themed decorations on top of all the diner stuff. It's wild. Like you can't make it up. You're eating at this 50 diner that is actually a Mexican restaurant. Oh my God. Well, you know, it, it, it like, it's like fusion, right? <laughs> <It's kind> of- <laughs> <laughs> at least style wise. So it, it's very fun to, to think of all these quirky small town stuff like Fred's Pizza has a actual stoplight in the middle of the restaurant. And I love Fred's. You know, Giovanni's is also great. There's always pizza wars of what your favorite pizza place is. And it's it's just fabulous. And so I really miss those places that have like the best mint chocolate chip ice cream I've ever had is at Misty's in Wheelersburg, Ohio. And I can't get it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Even though I know I'm sure they order it from somewhere else. Like I still don't know <laughs> where they order it from. So that's really what I miss. <laughs> well, Kendra, it has been so fun chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. You can find Kendra Winchester on various Instagram pages, including at Read Appalachia, at The Book Corgi, and at The Reading Women. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. We have a new updated website, so be sure you check it out for book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover. 
or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org. <laughs>